0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On today's episode, we have Lisa Alderson, the co-founder and CEO of Genome Medical, a digital health company. She's the former chief commercial officer and chief strategy officer at Invitae, the former CEO of Crossloop, and she is a Harvard MBA. Here's Lisa.
1: Good afternoon, Stanford. It's amazing to be here. I always love it when I'm on campus. My uh, husband is actually a graduate of the MS&E department. So it's uh, it's an honor to be here with all of you today. Um, as Matt said, part of the theme uh, for today, and as I was sort of reflecting back on my you know, roughly 20-year journey as an entrepreneur, It's very hard to encapsulate some life lessons into the uh, shortness of today's talk, Um, but I will attempt to do so. And in particular, I'm going to kind of focus on a couple of themes. Uh, One, kind of how an idea is born and how you find that passion point. Um, And then two, the idea of adaptability. And people often ask me, What are characteristics that make a great entrepreneur? And the number one item I always say is you have to be able to embrace change. You have to sort of take that as a catalyst, be an agent for change, and frankly, just be adaptable. Most people fundamentally do not like change. And I think as a sort of personal characteristic, that's an important part of uh, being an entrepreneur. So I'm going to start with kind of how do you find your passion? And how do you think about that point of passion in that if you end up pursuing a career in an area that is passion for you, that actually turns your career into a hobby and makes it a lot more fun and engaging. So I'm first going to share with you just a bit about my passion. And my passion uh, has been a long and winding road to get to where I am today. But I've now spent close to the majority of the last two decades really in the field of personalized medicine and, more specifically, in the field of genomics. And when I started uh, at Genomic Health in around 2000, it was a very small company. And initially, I kind of asked the question, what is genomics? (laughs) This was, this, was, this was 20 years ago, and it was a very nascent field. And now I think of myself as sort of very deep in that field. And so I want to share with you just a bit about why I'm passionate about genomics and why I'm passionate about genomics really fundamentally changing how we deliver healthcare today. And I'm hoping that it may spark an interest uh, in some of you. Uh, so I'm going to start with a prediction. My prediction is that within five years every cancer patient will have genomic testing. And that means both germline, which is the DNA you inherit from your parents, and somatic, profiling the tumor to try to better understand and select the right therapy. And that's going to be game changer in how we think about treating and diagnosing cancer patients today. My second prediction, that is within about 20 years, I believe virtually the majority of the US population, and perhaps the global population in developing countries, will be sequenced. Why I believe that is that we are at an inflection point where it is so clear that the clinical utility far is sort of vastly expanding in reaching to new horizons, and that that profoundly reshapes the definition of healthcare and how uh, we treat patients. First, I'm gonna just give you a little bit of background. Historically, our first of all, geno- our, we all have a genome. It's one of the number one effect- factors that affects our health. And yet only recently have we had the medicine, the science, and the technology to utilize that information for the benefit of patient care. So historically, this genomic information has been inaccessible. And it's been inaccessible because it's extremely costly, or has at least historically been. But this is starting to change. And I consider us in a genomic technology revolution. So what does that mean? On the far upper left of this graph, you'll see two lines. The red line is showing the cost to sequence a genome. The first human genome took years and billions of dollars to sequence. Now it only costs us about $1,000 to sequence a human genome. That decrease in the cost of sequencing is dropping far more rapidly than Moore's law would have predicted. The rise in sequencing is the blue chart, and uh, the, the years are not very visible here. Really, almost no sequencing occurred before the year of 2012. That's six years. You look at the growth in that sequencing chart. There are very few times in our lifetime you see a growth like that. The last one was the adoption of the internet. (laughs) That is a dramatic rise. And what's empowering that rise is the combination of the science, the medicine, and the technology now coming together. The second market force that is driving this is the internet of genomics. We're starting to see the value that each Each genome taken independently has some value, but in the aggregate, the big data effect of understanding how all of that information comes together for the benefit of better diagnosing disease, better understanding treatment options, is also rapidly increasing. And then lastly, though we have three billion base pairs in the human genome, it is ultimately a finite puzzle. And so better understanding, kind of like any puzzle, as you put some of the pieces into place, the pace of acceleration increases. And so we're seeing this really rapid increase, even just over the last two years, three years, four years, five years. And we know a ton more today about what is causative of disease than we did uh, five years ago and we'll, than we will in the future. So despite this rapid revolution and the advancement of the science, the medicine, and the technology, we still have a last mile access problem and by that I mean the following. Having sufficient clinicians, medical practitioners, who know how to use this information is our biggest impediment. And that's because the field has grown so quickly that we have such a small specialty area in the genetics and genomics realm. We, in fact, in this country have only 2,000 geneticists in the entire nation. We have about 5,000 genetic counselors, including a program here at Stanford. And so among those experts, for a population of 330 million that is simply insufficient, this ultimately touches just about every area of medicine. So ultimately, your primary care doctor, your pediatrician, an OB-GYN, a cardiologist, neurologist, they're all going to need to know something about genomics. But to get from where we are today in that future world is going to be a journey. And that is the journey that I am trying to solve. I'm trying to break down those barriers and really shepherd in this new era of genomic medicine in a really medically responsible way, but a much more efficient and scalable way than has ever been done before. To give you a little bit on why this matters, it's estimated that about 7% of the world's population actually has a genetic disorder. Most of that is undiagnosed. We just simply haven't had the tools and technologies to be able to get there. It affects cancer, cardiovascular disease, one out of 50 new live births, and virtually everybody in this room is carrying conditions as recessive carrier conditions that could affect your children or future generations to come. Everybody in this room has uh, markers that could predict your uh, response to drugs. And so in this future world of precision medicine, where we can treat the right patient with the right drug at the right time, that's really what leads to improved patient outcomes and reduced cost of care uh, in the healthcare system today. So I want you to just imagine with me for a moment a future of medicine. First, today, we largely practice medicine the same for everybody. We have a standard of care. In this future delivery of healthcare, instead of waiting for people to get sick, observing their symptoms, and then trying to alleviate those symptoms, we'll move into a world where it's much more proactive. Individuals will be sequenced and will use that information to better understand your risk for disease. We will use that information to get to a much more accurate diagnosis faster. And we'll use that information to select the right drug and to even affect your dosing. In this future world, our genomes become much more valuable over time, and they ultimately are the gateway that enable personalized medicine. I'd like to paint for you briefly what that future of healthcare looks like. So welcome to Genome Medical. This is a company I started uh, two years ago. And our vision really is how do we bring genetics into everyday life? We do that by providing expert genetic healthcare, or individuals and their whole multi generational family. We are set up nationwide. This is not trivial. <laughs> when you think about how many medical practices are nationwide, it's really just telehealth. Stanford is not nationwide. If you're seen by a doctor here, they can't see your entire family unless they come here, of course, right? And yet, our genome ties us together with our whole family. And so being able to see a whole multi-generational family suddenly creates a much richer understanding of what, uh, how that family could benefit. So we have just over 40 clinicians. Uh, we are a medical practice operating uh, out of 50 states. We have geneticists. We have genetic counselors. We have other specialists, uh, like oncologists, uh, like PharmDs pharmacists. Uh, And we have primary care doctors and care coordinators. And that whole collective care team uh, really sees individuals today. I won't spend a lot of time on this, just that uh, our leadership team really brings some of the top geneticists and genetic counselors to bear, along with a business team uh, that is very passionate about personalized medicine. And um, Dr. Randy Scott, who's in the upper left next to me, uh, he is the founder of um, Genomic Health and Invite and in Insight Genomics prior to that. And he and I have now worked together in three different companies. Dr. Robert Green in the upper left is a, our third co-founder, and he's a leading medical geneticist at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. One of the things I would say as an entrepreneur that's important is don't run out of cash. <laughs> so raising capital and thinking early about how do you build strength not only amongst your team, but how do you build strength amongst your investor base? And how do they help bring kind of the strategic value add and network of relationships and kind of wire you into an ecosystem uh, that, uh, that would not be present without them? So we're back by Kanan Partners, uh, Illumina Ventures, GE Ventures, Kaiser Permanente Ventures, Health Invest Equity Partners, Flywheel Ventures, uh, and some private individual investors. When I think about this future world, there are really two elements I'm trying to bring together. One is that tremendous clinical expertise to first know which patients would most benefit, second, what test to order, and third, how to interpret the resulting information to guide improvement in patient care. But that has to come together with real technology advantage. And so investing in the tools and technology that enable higher Efficacy and higher efficiency service delivery than has ever been done before is really part of that challenge. We're telehealth, so everything is technology-enabled. You can go online, schedule an appointment tonight, tomorrow, over the weekend, uh, evening hours, weekend hours. Uh, The convenience of that is part of really breaking down the barriers, because today, you want to go see a geneticist or genetic counselor, first, they're largely at leading academic centers. Second, the wait time can be months. Uh, and in the case of some individuals, I've heard of six months. Um, and so it's about ease of access, and that's really one of the problems we're solving. I mentioned briefly this assess, select, integrate. It's really about how do we find the patients that would benefit. Uh, there's a stat that shows today the standard of care in clinical genetics. For women who may be susceptible to hereditary breast and ovarian cancer who meet NCCN guidelines, only about 20% of them are actually getting testing today. And the reason for this is that the standard of care has evolved so quickly that we are just not finding those patients in the healthcare system today. They're being overlooked. And because of that, we're, we're failing that population. Um, to just try to highlight this. So I don't know, how how many of you have actually had any kind of consumer genetic test? Like a 23andMe, or an Ancestry, or Helix, National Geographic, okay. Uh, I'd say roughly maybe 15%. (laughs) So take that now, and it's really kind of upgrading to a medical grade genetics. And that is really what allows us to better understand your risk, as well as better diagnosis and ultimately selection of therapy. But that consumer-grade genetic testing world is also growing really rapidly. And so if you've had testing and you now have some insight and interest, you now have to integrate it into the healthcare delivery system. And that is a challenge. That's what we work work on. We help hospitals, health systems, physician groups, uh, as well as individuals be able to understand and interpret that information. I won't spend time on this, but let me suffice it to say that there are 7,000 inheritable disorders. And so even this small group of specialists, they really specialize in different areas. Cancer genetics, reproductive health, cardiogenetics, pediatric genetics, proactive health, pharmacogenomics that relates to our ability, uh, um, how, how we respond to drugs. And so in this process, the typical path is that we'll see a patient, we'll help them understand whether or not testing would be beneficial for them, possibly whether or not it's covered by insurance. Uh, We then order the test, we get the test results back, we interpret it, and we now guide to a personalized medicine plan based upon their genome. So it's guiding to clinical care and insights that could help to prevent disease or better treat disease. So the way to think about it um, is that genomics is really a lifelong journey. And there's different milestones, so some would argue that in the future of medicine, every newborn will be sequenced at birth and will use that information to help improve their care. I would argue that I think it's about revealing the right information at the right time because there's a lot of complexity in that information, and how do we break this down and interpret it as relevant for the newborn, for the toddler, for, you know, the four- or five-year-old that's now hitting some milestones for the 20-year-old, the 30-year-old, the 40-year-old, and how do we peel back those layers? And so if you think about this, this is bringing together technology. It's a bit about big data and harnessing the power of that genome in the aggregate. It's really bringing together kind of the clinical actions and knowledge of what do we now do. Um, This is very different than, let's say, having a high-cholesterol blood test, and knowing definitively how to interpret and use that information. It's extremely complex. And so the the power of harnessing genetics and genomics is that it leads to both improved patient outcomes for individuals, more personalized medicine, better treatment. Uh, It allows us in this world today where we think about one standard of care for every individual. Roughly what that means is that we're over-treating half of the population, and we're under-treating half of the population, and we just don't know which half is which. In a future world, if we can stratify that patient population and say you're high risk, you're moderate risk, you're low risk, the change of care can be quite dramatic. And that leads to better outcomes, but it also leads to cost savings for us in our healthcare system. So with that, I will leave the uh, background of my personal passion, but uh, ask you a question question is, if you had the opportunity to be sequenced today, would you choose to do so? It's a real question because part of that is how do you react and interpret information? And most people ask that question to say, well, if there's something actionable that could come out of it that could actually change outcomes for me, then the answer is yes, right? Because if I know I'm at risk of cancer, and I now qualify for more active surveillance, and maybe I get my MRI instead of my mammogram, and so it's detected early, and therefore it's detected when it is most treatable, which means that my survival rate is much higher, like that means information is power, and I want that information. Uh, But if it's something that I can't do anything about, then I don't know if I want that information, right? So I'll leave you with that question. Would you like to be sequenced? As you think about how do you find your passion, my primary advice would be, first, obviously, spend time doing the things you love doing. (laughs) Uh, And in the journey of uh, that finding your passion, I think a big part of that is really trying to pursue what you feel you're uniquely able to create value and add value. And that may not be what you are intending as you're graduating, it can be something that you sort of unfold over time. And by turning your work into a hobby, again, I feel like I wake up every day super jazzed about what I'm here to do. And I'm jazzed about it because I've been touched by many individuals in my life who could benefit from this science, this technology. And in the standard medical delivery system, It takes about 17 years to go from where we have clinical utility for a new test or a new uh, device to the actual adoption. And in that 17 years, I mean, that's a whole generation. There are a lot of lives that could have been touched, a lot of lives that could have been saved. And this, to me, is too compelling to sit by the sidelines and not help those individuals today. So that's my passion. The second area I would like to highlight is, as you're thinking about how do you find this passion, I think it's equally important to to be adaptable, to be adaptable to life's journey. And for me, that should take a little pressure off on the picking the right major, finding the right first job, having, you know, entire life plan well mapped out. So I want to share with you a little bit about my journey and how I've gone from when I was sort of graduating from undergrad to where I am today. There's been one common theme throughout my career, which is that technology is really the cornerstone of innovation. And for me, I've been driven to industries where technology is driving change. And that started in entertainment and media, with the ability through the internet to start to repurpose content, bring it online, and really thinking about bridging to the last mile access to the home and high-speed broadband to the home. And then it really evolved, and it evolved more into pure technology and trying to solve that last mile broadband to the home with technology. And then it further evolved and into life sciences and specifically genomics. And so to some extent, when I was sitting Kind of at graduation, at undergrad, if you had said, you know, 20-plus years in the future, you're going to help drive the genomic revolution, (laughs) I would not have thought that likely to be feasible. I am a liberal arts undergrad from Colorado State University. I have an MBA from Harvard Business School. And for me, that defines this vision for adaptability. Pick up knowledge along the way find your interest, find your passion, sort of take that in as it comes and be willing to really bridge to what that future might be for you. I look at that as have kind of a directional plan. So when I was in my early 20s, I sort of had the life plan mapped out. By the time I was in my late 20s, I realized, you know, directionality here is good. Like it's good to be purposeful. You clearly want to have you know, a guide, if you will. But I think you want to be open to opportunity along that journey. I think you also really want to be able to accept and embrace change. can't tell you how many people I know that end up just kind of doing the same thing because it's comfortable. That will not change the world. That will not allow you to leave a mark by virtue of the benefit of being where you are, clearly you've demonstrated high intellect. Clearly, you've demonstrated an ability to do more. So it's really a question of what is your purpose? What is that calling for you? And how do you want to think about leaving impact? How do you want to think about being potentially an agent for change? And can it start with just being open to change? I have young children, 10-year-old um, and 12-year-old. And I think about one of the best life skills I want to be able to give them is a willingness to put themselves outside of their comfort zone. Because by doing that, we learn, we acquire knowledge, we build confidence. As an entrepreneur, you really have to be willing <laughs> to take the big leap. Now, this was the individual that jumped from 20,000 feet. Like, that's more courage than I have. <laughs> I, will, I will say that. <laughs> but I think the being able to, you know, take the big leap and build the parachute on the way down is definitely part of a characteristic of an entrepreneur. So I have now started or been a part of the early stage startup team at eight companies spanning three different industries, and like anything you do and you do frequently, there's sort of a muscle memory that you develop. So there's some things for me, particularly when I'm you know, person of one starting a company uh, or person of two or three, and I definitely advocate for partners <laughs> in starting a company because there's highs and lows and hopefully you kind of balance each other out. Uh, but that really I see it as just that confidence, that ability to put yourself in a place outside of your comfort zone and having sort of the, the knowledge or at least just that sense of, you know what? I got this. I'll figure it out. I may not have ever done this before, but I have the tools. I can figure it out. And I think that's what really sets an entrepreneur apart. If you can find your passion and you couple it with this ability to be adaptable, to be willing to take in new new experiences, then you've kind of got a winning formula. You've got a formula that allows you to maybe bring a new perspective and new ideas to the world, but it also allows you to kind of be propelled forward with your inner drive and your passion. And that's really where ideas are born. So uh, I will leave it with the adaptability and embracing change as one of those takeaways for me is just what makes an entrepreneur capable of changing the world is really driven off of that ability to embrace change, to be comfortable with the unfamiliar. The last chapter and what I want to share uh, is just about enjoying the journey. And I think this feeds into the other two aspects, this find your passion, and willing to be adaptable. Ultimately, it takes a lot to build a company, to start with nothing, to have an idea, to encourage other people to share the passion and that idea, to join you in that journey, to find investors willing to back the idea, and ultimately to be able to execute and drive operational efficiency that allows you to excel far above your competitors. And so when I think about that, there will be a lot of highs. There will be certainly some lows. And being able to kind of celebrate the wins along the way is is an important part of it. I often find myself kind of running what I consider to be a marathon, but at a sprinter's pace. And that's really hard to do. That is not something that is actually sustainable over a very long period of time. But I think when you have that passion, and you're really eager and compelled with every day when you wake up, it's kind of easy to just keep going. And yet, I think you need to really calibrate on that and make sure that you take time to enjoy the journey. So I will share just a little bit about my passions outside of uh, building Genome Medical. So I am an avid outdoor enthusiast. I am a world adventurer and traveler. Uh, I have been skydiving in Colorado. I've been jungle trekking in Malaysia. I've been zip lining in the Bavarian Alps. <laughs> Uh, I've watched the sun rise over Angkor Wat in Cambodia, and I've watched it set over the pyramids of Giza in Egypt. And I think all of that contributes to your life experiences. For me, life is about the accumulation of experiences you have along the way. That's part of what makes you you. That's part of what makes life fun. And so sort of embrace that and have and create and carve out time for yourself along the way is really important because nobody else can do that for you. You really have to be the one that says, you know what? These are my boundaries, particularly as an entrepreneur. Like, let me tell you, the to-do list never ends. (laughs) There is not a point at which you say, great, I'm done. There's always more you can do, always. And so if you let that spill over, suddenly you're working 16-hour days, seven days a week, and you're now running the marathon at the sprinter's pace. Can't do that that long. You can sprint, but then you have to take a break. (laughs) Then you can sprint, then you have to take a break. What you can't do is sprint, 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 and just keep going, like something will give. and that's where you start to impact relationships that's where you start to impact health that's where just not good <laughs> so i would encourage and this is true not just for a career and entrepreneur as an entrepreneur by any means like this is true across the board but i think by virtue of being a highly accomplished high achieving individual you're kind of at risk of you know the danger of just doing too much and so i would encourage you to Try to place some boundaries. Decide what works for you. You know, is it always dinner at home or making sure you get your workout in before you start the day, or you know, having 10 minutes of meditation at lunch, whatever it is, just make sure you're creating that carve out and that time and space for yourself. How many of you have heard the analogy of the big rocks? One, two. Ah, interesting. Okay, then I'm going to share this with you. This was not my invention. Um, Stephen Covey, I know, has talked about this, but I think the original author is a bit unknown. But if I take this and I say, okay, does that look pretty full? Think that's full? It's got about six rocks in there. right, so now I'm going to add just a few more. That's a little big. (laughs) And I'm gonna add some more pebbles. Okay, now is that full? Yeah, pretty full. (laughs) Well, not done, so now we'll try not to spill on the computer. <laughs> I' need to shake it up okay now we're now we're looking pretty full. Well, oh, got a little pocket in there right we We now say that this is full. Wait, there's more. pour a little water in there. That's going to fill up the rest of the crevice. Ah, takes quite a bit of water. All right. So how about now? Do we get anything else in that jar? Yes, OK. What else are we going to put in there? What's that? <laughs> So okay. So what's 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 the lesson of this? Break it down in steps. That's a good lesson. Always good to break it down in steps.
2: Focus on the big things more than to Focus
1: on the big things. Fast things, If if I put all of that water and sand and pebbles and gravel in first it'd probably get to about here, which case I'd actually never fit the big rocks in the jar. So in this analogy, the big rocks are the things that matter most to you. I use this in my company. Every quarter, we have a management or a quarterly business review. It's Like, okay, what are our three big rocks? What are the three things we absolutely have to do this next quarter? What are the three things we're going to get done for this year? Keep the eyes on the prize, big rocks. If you can move those big boulders up the hill, that that's what's going to drive your value creation. That's what's going to help you get to the next milestone. That's what's going to help you demonstrate you know, the opportunity to raise more capital because you've now sort of shown your, your proof point. This holds in your personal life, right? If it's about family or it's about spirituality or it's about, but like know what matters most to you because if you just let your jar be filled up for you, it will be full, I can assure you, but you might not be doing what you want to be doing. You might not be focused on the things that matter most to you. Other people ask things of you, right? You put pressure and things on yourself. But unless you can be very deliberate about this is what I have to get done, this is what matters most. It's very easy to see people, particularly in a small company, but even a large company, like very busy. They have a lot to do. But unless you're focused on the result, I need to get from point A to point B and here's how I'm going to do it. Like, you might not have much to show for it. And in my company, I don't really care. If you work from Hawaii, I don't really care where you are or how much you're working. I really don't care. We, in fact, have an open vacation policy, unlimited. What I do care about is, are you driving results? Are we getting to where we need to go? And are we doing that as efficiently kind of, and as effectively as we can? And that's hard. Back to, you know, myself, like I find myself just running the marathon at the sprinter's pace, and it's because I realize I've got to get more focused. I have to pare back. I have to really think about what those big rocks are. Sorry, I was on the wrong slide for that one. <laughs> so, then, you know, I think just to kind of wrap that up and pause, for me, it's really just about there's gonna be some highs along the journey, there's gonna be some lows. Um, celebrate the wins as you go. That's important. Recognize those milestones, recognize the accomplishments. Um, know your big rocks. Keep that analogy personal life, professional life. Um, And that's what I think allows you to really focus and be a value creator. And when you take that along with the idea of adaptability and the idea of finding your passion, it allows you to think about if you see so clearly something that would make your life better, make something better for a whole bunch of people, possibly even change a whole industry. Maybe even change multiple industries. Like that creates the internal drive. That creates the passion. That propels you forward. That lets you turn a job into a hobby and have fun doing it. And that really is what allows you to make a meaningful life. So with that, I'm going to wrap and open it up for some questions.
0: Painfully, no, the number one reason startups fail is they don't achieve product market fit. And I'm sure you knew this going into your new venture. Um, as you reflect back on
1: the big rocks and your thought process for how to um, bust through that incredibly important milestone, You're obviously success, I think you raised over $21 million, but that thinking had to go in from the very early formation of the company.
2: Could you share some of your insights into um,
1: how you were able to achieve that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, thank you. So the question is, how do you get to product market fit and how do you get there quickly? And can I share some insights from that? Um, so I'm going to step back first from Genome Medical and speak about this more holistically. So uh, I was honored and fortunate to work at Idealab, which was one of the first technology uh, incubators, uh, back in the dot-com boom era. <laughs> and so this was uh, 1999, 2000. And I learned a lot from Bill Gross, who's the founder of Idealab. And one of the things I learned most from him is that idea of how do you establish that product market fit and do it very quickly. And in the era of Internet adoption for the first time, (laughs) everything was kind of like, hey, can we sell dog food online? Can we sell cars online? What can we sell online? And part of what I took from Bill was the idea that, you know what, what you want to do is get as quickly as possible to the point where you have a minimal viable product. You put that product out into the market and you just observe what happens. The internet was this beautiful way to suddenly do kind of firsthand market research uh, without a whole lot of cost. And that kind of holds true today, uh, particularly in app world and other ways in which you don't have huge R&D investment up front. And so I really learned from that and that you know what, it's not initially about building the best product, because then you can get in this mindset of like, we will build it and they will come. And then gosh, if they don't come, ooh, that's panic moment. <laughs> and so how do you think about a real incremental build and starting with this like super scrappy, easy? And you know, if it's held together with spit and bailiwick, like that's fine, because once you get to your proof point and demonstration, you may have to kind of like rip it all apart and build it again and build it better. But guess what? It hasn't taken a whole lot of capital to get there and to be able to demonstrate that that you know you now have this product market fit. So the number one risk in starting a new company often is that, like sometimes referred to as will the dogs eat the dog food, right? Is, is, is there a market today for your product or service and how do you quickly validate that? And that's really the number one thing that investors will be looking to. And certainly in the field of genomics, Uh, because we've had sort of this promise now for almost two decades. And yet a lot of people would say, well, what has come of it? It's still pretty early. And that field's still fairly nascent. But as I said, like we're on kind of this growth trajectory. And so there's a part of how do you read the market? How do you know your market timing? Um, You know, and how do you get that right? And I've always held true to kind of Bill Gross's philosophy of like, get that minimal viable product out there as quickly as possible and assess it. So at Genome Medical, frankly, we have a wealth and richness of opportunities. And part of that is really trying to say, which markets are we going to go after? How do we hone and get to the right product market fit? How do we start to drive adoption? Because adoption is what lets you iterate in getting that product market fit right. It's what helps you drive sort of an exceptional customer experience. And it's what ultimately allows you to kind of hone a business model, particularly if you're building something from scratch that has never, ever been done before. Like that's hard, it's very, it's very different than saying, okay, I'm gonna set up you know, the umpteenth dry cleaner. There's like kind of a formula of how you might go do that. When you're creating a whole new industry or creating a new market, like there's no formula you're following. You're trying to figure it out as you go along. And that is quite complex and challenging. Yes.
2: Uh, yeah. Thanks for the talk. I we, I have a question, um, which is concerning your company, but it's also a bigger question. Yeah. Uh, I think for like all people starting something. I think one one of the, the things which is concerning me is the question of healthcare. Yeah. People get tested. Uh, this is really interesting for uh, health insurance. For, yeah. Uh, companies like someone's tested and you know this person will have cancer in five years what about health insurance right yeah so i think the knowledge are really interested for that so this this effects like the whole country thinking about how do we deal with people is there what about the democracy of health care? yeah it's not that much the case here, but where I come from, Germany, there is a totally different idea of, of, of what healthcare should be for people, for society, for the democratic society, right? Yeah. So this is my first question. The second question is how do you deal with the idea that if you give people the result that they might get cancer in five years, or probably very definitely will get cancer, how how do you deal with the responsibility of them having a sort of psychological effect? Yes. Yeah. like a depress or whatever. So there's a lot of things concerned which I would be concerned, if this would be my company. And so I'm wondering how how do you deal with it in connection to your company, but also how should people deal with something like this if they are young entrepreneurs, if they don't take know the outcome, and how yes. the society as a whole?
1: Great. Rich riches of questions. So the, the first question really is kind of a population health question, and as we think about genetics and genomics. Should we be concerned about health insurance having maybe access to that information and what are the implications of that? And then the second question is at more of a personal level, you know, how should we be concerned or I concerned about kind of an empowering and enabling individuals to have information that may give them knowledge about, you know, potential increased risk for certain disease and uh, what are the responsibilities related to that? So for the first one, for kind of population health and uh, kind of uh, insurance. So first, um, within the United States, there is the Genetic Information and Non-Discrimination Act, which states that uh, your employer and your health insurer cannot discriminate against you based upon your genetic information. And so that provides some degree of protection Uh, There are also, though, life insurance policies and others which are not under that domain today. And so if you're looking at a life insurance policy, they may say, have you had any kind of genetic testing? Were there any results to be aware of? And life insurance can do profiling based upon understanding risks. And so we do advise and counsel patients to be thoughtful about that and whether or not uh, that's something that would matter. Um, If you're in the field of symptomatic disease and you're trying to get to a better diagnosis and a better treatment, like all that kind of goes out the wall, right? Like if you have cancer, you want to address that and any kind of genetic testing is beneficial. So that applies most under kind of healthy well people. At a population health level, where we see this field going, so if you think about the clinical utility for genetic testing combined with the cost of genetic testing, there's a point where those two curves intersect. And it starts to make sense to do testing on everyone. And I think some of the concerns in getting to your second part of the question about what's the obligation and responsibility to an individual, frankly, this is part of the value of the profession of genetics and genetic counseling in particular, because I view it as a very personalized decision. It's a decision that may be different for me than it would be for you. And that decision comes down to a couple of things. First, do you suffer from general anxiety or depression? Do you have kind of a tendency to rethink your choices and things you've done? Some of that's a little bit getting at kind of like how do you process information? How do you think about information? This is not deterministic. This is not the crystal ball that says, you know, you're going to get name this condition, you know, at a certain point in the future. It's really about looking at inheritable disease and causes. And many diseases have genetics as sort of a component to it, but maybe not the only component. And yet, you're probably, many of you, are familiar with the Angelina Jolie story, where she went through pretty extreme measures and had. Uh, a mastectomy and an ophorectomy based upon what for her was an 85% lifetime risk of getting cancer. And that scenario, like she's on, you know, one spectrum where, gosh, information was really powerful because her mother died of cancer, her grandmother died of cancer. Like those are stats that start to feel a little bit scary. And it's kind of a question of, well, in that scenario, are we actually more afraid of the unknown because by not knowing, like, you kind of feel like maybe it's there and it's, it's sort of ticking. Versus by having the information that empowers you, one, through your insurance, to now actually get more active surveillance and care. Like, there is a scenario where you can just find that earlier and it's much more treatable. And then there's other scenarios where you decide, you know what, we're going to take really aggressive measures to prevent that disease. So, I think again, that's really all about personal choice, and that part of our job at Genome Medical for an individual is to better understand how do you process that information? How do you think about the risks and benefits for you? How would you, with anticipatory guidance, start to think about what you might do with that information? And to some extent, you know, if you don't anticipate any change in how you would think about using that information, then maybe that Isn't something you feel is needed for you? When I look at the field, the areas of opportunity that are richest one, carrier testing. So most people get carrier testing today when they're pregnant. That's pretty late. At that point, your choices are pretty severely limited. You really want to get testing when you're in your 20s and when you're, you know, even before you're thinking about having kids, because we all carry risks for disease that we could pass on to our children. It's often typically a question of, you know, the two partners and whether or not that creates a risk. Secondary is around pharmacogenomics. Many of us are on drugs that have no efficacy and worse, maybe downside effect. And so if you could eliminate all the people who are on drugs who are not working for them and eliminate all the adverse effects, that would be huge. That would be huge for those individuals. That would be huge for society. That would be huge for cost savings. So I think of it as there is a responsibility. This is an area in particular where, you know, ethics is important um, and protection of the individual is important. So our number one value at Geno Medical is really how do we put the patient first? How are we the navigator to help that patient make the right choice for them? Not my choice. What's right for that individual? Yes.
2: Uh, two quick questions. One is with respect to the example you used of the stones. Um, so you said the big stones one should focus on. What are the techniques you use to determine your stones? And uh, the second quick question was with respect to the MVP. Uh, what are some techniques you use to decide where you draw the line, minimum line?
1: Yeah, right. line. So the first question is with regard to the stones, what techniques do I use to draw my stones? Uh, and with that, you know, for me, um, it is about just being mindful And kind of bringing front and center the deliberateness of those choices. With my team, we go through a set of kind of exercises and discussions and just thinking about, again, like what matters most? What's most material? How are we going to move the company forward? How are we going to build that momentum? So I think as you're kind of intertwined with a bunch of other people. (laughs) It's more important to have deliberateness in that process and to have kind of methodologies around that process. Um, Remind me of your second question? MVP, MVP, yes, thank you. So for the MVP and kind of defining what's a minimal viable product, uh, what are some of the techniques that I use? So first, when starting a company, in fact, even before starting a company, the first thing I do is go and talk to as many People is possible, <laughs> both possible customers, possible partners, possible vendors, possible competitors, people I might displace. I want to better learn the dynamics in the market and the ecosystem and what the key drivers are, what are the key opportunities. And if you can get into a really rapid cycle of market knowledge and insights. That drives innovation. So before this company, I was the chief commercial officer and chief strategy officer at a company called Invite, which is now one of the fastest growing uh, genetic testing labs. Uh, and in that process, the very first thing I did, in the first couple of months I was there, is I went and talked to as many genetic counselors, as many geneticists, as many oncologists as I could, as many cardiologists. And I was really seeking a couple of things. You know, one, have you ever heard of genetics? <laughs> Do you order any genetic testing? If so, from who, why, what do you like, what do you not like? If I were to build something made specifically for you, what would you like that to be? How should it be priced? What service do you need? What kind of customer support can I give you? What are your pain points? How do I solve them? And then based upon that feedback, it allows me to very quickly say, okay, like how do I build that? And that allows you to differentiate relative to others. It allows you to maybe come up with some unique pricing or some unique service that nobody else brings. And then I think in terms of actually defining that MVP, really it's sort of a trade-off of like how and where can you draw the line in the sand. And by that, I mean it needs to be robust enough that you actually have something of value to offer and you're getting a kind of like real litmus test from the market about the value of that product or service. But it shouldn't be so over-engineered that it takes you much longer to get to market. And so I like to think about it as, like, where can we get in three months? Um, I started uh, Genome Medical in June of uh, 2016, and we were starting to see patients before the end of that year. And so that, to me, for a medical practice, was a pretty quick iterative cycle to get to a very minimal viable product. Great,
2: last question. I see Kaiser is an investor. Could you please tell a couple of the suggestions they made regarding the future of your
1: company? Sure. So one, I'll just speak briefly to the investors and why we selected the investors we have. So Canaan Partners is really a crossover firm between technology and healthcare, the two pillars of strength I need in my company. Uh, Kaiser Permanente is an integrated healthcare system, Uh, and integrated healthcare systems have been earlier adopters of genomics because they have both the value proposition as provider and as payer. Uh, And actually, even if I look outside of the United States, there are uh, countries I would point to, Israel being one of those, where they have adopted genetics at a very fast pace. And every woman in Israel is eligible for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer testing, I believe, when they hit 30. So they're already in a population health approach, and we are not yet there today. And so part of it's finding early adopters, and uh, in the case of Kaiser, really our value is how do they, how do we gain insights and learnings, and just being able to connect and meet uh, with the varying providers uh, within Kaiser. And then GE Venture sells to hospitals and health systems, and so again that helps me with my market cycle of learning and getting feedback and input. Illumina Ventures, and Illumina more specifically, but Illumina is almost single-handedly driving the genomics revolution by building sequencers. And so there's a lot of value for me in being part of that ecosystem. So again, it's, um, I think, only by virtue of having built a number of companies have I gotten to the point where I feel uh, much more about selection of investors as a strategic objective and one that you need to spend a lot of time on And make sure that your interests and theirs are kind of aligned and that they also bring a tremendous amount of value in addition to capital.
0: The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production supported by the venture capital firm DFJ. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.